This course is about a thing that does not have an operative definition. There is no operative definition of identitarianism. Um, the term itself is, uh, has, come, has come into being in its present form over about the past five years. And one of the things that's gonna be really, that will keep hitting as a theme in this, this course is how recent a lot of this stuff is. So many of the things that uh, are true about various aspects of identity politics in our present moment have been true for less than 10 years. And um, one of the things that we're gonna be pushing back against consistently is a kind of historical amnesia that envelops debates about identity, an inability to imagine a past, even an incredibly recent past, in which we talked and thought in totally different ways. And so part of the very objective study in this course is the amnesia. We, have, we will periodically have to directly confront the amnesia and look at ways in which the semantic field of words changes so rapidly and um, that people will forget what side of a debate they were on five years ago. Uh, and that's, um, so there's a certain kind of maelstrom here. And I would argue, you know, and of course we're coming at this from an Anglo-American perspective. I think Los Altos does a better job of be of trying to address the scholarship and perspectives of the larger English speaking world. We do a better job of looking at experiences in India and of thought coming out of India, but we don't do a great job. We're just doing a better job than other institutes that are comparable. Um, so for, so some of the things I'm going to say may correctly um, credit identitarianism as a phenomenon that diffused outwards from the United States. Um, sometimes I'll be wide of the mark, though, and there will be, um, and I'll be very pleased to um, get information that complicates or problematizes um, this fairly U.S.-centric perspective. In my view, though, the, the, the theory I'm starting with, identitarianism as a term um, was created by political exigencies caused by the Bernie Sanders presidential bids. Um, Bernie Sanders, during his 2016 presidential bid, uh, beginning in 2015, consistently attacked something he called identity politics. And um, he stated that it was unhelpful, that it was driving his movement apart, that it was preventing solidarity, et cetera. And many people intervened to say, you're tarring a lot of identity politics with the same brush. You're taking the thinking of theorists like Stuart Hall and you're putting it in the same category as, um, uh, as people coming from a very, very different perspective. And that it's really important that, um, that we make a distinction. One of the things, Sanders himself didn't do it, but many people who agreed with Bernie Sanders and went, no, 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 there's a really problematic form of identity politics on the horizon. We don't like it. We think it undermines solidarity. 
we can't just call it identity politics because we've had been directed to a bunch of very positive identity politics that is class conscious, that is pro-solidarity. So people began using the term identitarianism. Uh, and that's really how it's spun out, that people, there's a, there's a way of doing identity politics people don't like uh, if they're sort of on the socialist left, they want, uh, they associate it with liberalism and various other things, and they wanted a label. So the label has appeared over the past five years. A definition has not really appeared to follow the label. Um, before doing this course, I decided to commit to write an operating definition. So one of the things we're doing in this course is we're gonna, we're gonna test a perspective definition. We may end up changing that definition. To pull back just a little um, in dealing with some of the sort of seedbed for this on the left, um, I wanna go back to the 1990s when we see so many of the sort of shapes and forms that politics has taken today first appear. And at the beginning of the 1990s, an academic named Kimberly Crenshaw um, wrote about a thing she called intersectionality. Um, now, when she wrote about this thing called intersectionality, it referred to a way, a way that, that she was doing social science in studying um, how services that were provided to women were provided to racialized women. That was the purpose of her study. And at the beginning of it, she said, now, intersectionality is not a theory of identity. It's not a philosophy. It's not a system for understanding things. I've just developed this in order to do this study. But of course, by 10 years ago, intersectionality had become all of the things that the essay describing it say, says that it is not. And many of the ways that these identitarian impulses have appeared um, on the socialist left or to challenge the socialist left have come out, I would say, the vanguard of this or a harbinger of this was this increasing use of the term intersectionality. Now, what intersectionality very quickly came to mean was concurrently considering how more than one form of identity can concurrently impact a person. So you're being impacted by your race and your gender. Therefore, that's, they're intersecting. Therefore, that's intersectionality. Now, there are some obvious problems with that. Um, one is that... Um, it assumes that all of these kinds of identities are pre-existing and can't be erased, that they're not contingent. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that intersectionality implies is that race is eternal and universal. Uh, more harmfully, I would argue, and this is again not what Kimberly Crenshaw herself said, but rather what people who follow Crenshaw assert. That prior to Crenshaw, nobody thought in a serious theoretical way about how different forms of oppressive identity intersect. 
And it's that claim that if you don't say you agree with intersectionality, then what you're saying is that gender and race don't matter and don't affect anyone because Kimberly Crenshaw is the only person who's ever observed that these things concurrently interact. Obviously, this put people at odds with Marxists, given that Engels argues that class arose from um, gender differences in labor and that gender um, precedes um, our concept of class. It is, it is the original class system. And so a lot of what intersectionality was about was denying that socialists or second wave feminists um, had considered uh, the concurrent action of more than one type of identity. So, so intersectionalists will argue that second wave feminists did not, um, did not care about race or that uh, Marxists did not care about gender. Um, and this requires, uh, and this produced real amnesia. And I began to notice this because I, I denounced intersectionality as a way of understanding things. And I faced immediate pressure from people saying, Stuart, if you say that, if you criticize intersectionality, people are going to think you're a racist and a homophobe and a misogynist. Um, and I'm going, well, this is a bad way to understand this thing. And, but I noticed that many of the properties we associate with this broader phenomenon of identitarianism began to appear with this massive subscription to the term intersectional around, I would say, 2011 is when we see this. So many of these developments in identity politics are so recent. Um, and in fact, I would put Kimberly Crenshaw in a larger category um, with uh, the philosopher Deleuze and certain others who are people who wrote major theoretical interventions before 1991 that these interventions were viewed as second tier or not relevant. And because of the intellectual poverty of the left since 1991, their old thinking has been reintroduced and is suddenly revolutionary. So I think that I'm not, I don't see any culpability on the part of Crenshaw here. Crenshaw's theory is like many other theories that didn't pass muster during the Cold War when we had a more rigorous disputational culture on the left and suddenly came to rear its head as our disputational culture became less sophisticated. Um, so there's an entanglement between what we call identitarianism and intersectionality. They're not the same, but they're entangled phenomena, especially when we're trying to build solidarity on the left. Many of the questions and issues around identitarianism are being hammered out in um, discussions about the rights of transgender people. To transgender people are bearing an excessive amount of the brunt of the social experience of discussing this new form of identity politics. 
Uh, some people, I mean, and, and there's tremendous polarization going on right now that, um, uh, that again, is very, very centered on um, a, some conflicts within the left, primarily between second wave feminists and contemporary transgender rights activists. Um, and again, I want to emphasize how recent this is. Ten years ago, um, the leadership of trans communities was overwhelmingly dominated by feminists. Um, the uh, uh, people like Jamie Lee Hamilton in Vancouver, Nina Arsenault in Toronto, um, these were trans women who had um, a profound understanding of feminist theory. Uh, they were materialists, and um, they were interested in broad-based solidarity uh, action. And I was very much, when I lived in Toronto, um, an ally of, uh, of that community. And... Um, Today, of course, feminist is used as an epithet by trans rights activists. Today, trans rights activists um, disproportionately focus their activist energy on shutting down events and projects by second wave feminists. And a commensurate reaction has taken place on the other side vast majority of self-identified second wave feminists um, were interested in the rights of transgender people, recognized their existence as a community, and fought as allies in solidarity with trans rights activists. Today's second wave feminists are the people most likely not to recognize a person's self-assigned gender. Um, and so, there's been a complete um, reshaping of the uh, of the of the uh, ideology and structures of uh, of movements in the past decade, and so we could have a small optic for this course and examine it as a conflict between second wave feminism and uh, the leadership of the trans community today. I think that a lot of my work, unacknowledged by both of the, uh, uh, <laughs> unacknowledged uh, by the communities I'm talking about, um, is to break that idea. Uh, I don't believe that identitarianism especially has anything to do with um, uh, the rights of transgender people except as a matter of historical coincidence that um, major growth in an acceptance of that community took place concurrently with the rise of identitarianism. And so people were more likely to use these new behavioral and intellectual tools identitarianism put at their disposal in order to achieve uh, immediate uh, political objectives. Uh, so one of the things that we have to work hard to emancipate the idea that people who ha uh, that people who believe that identitarianism is a problem from the accusation of transphobia. 
and also to work to emancipate transgender people from feeling they, their only um, option for defining themselves uh, and defining their identity is to take an identitarian course. I really hope that, um, and I think that there are many people who are, um, you know, supporters of, um, of uh, Rape Relief Women's Shelter uh, or supporters of Morgan Auger who know we're taking, we're doing this course and believe and, uh, and believe right now that this is a, um, an effort to undermine uh, transgender people and their struggle for recognition. Uh, I want to make very clear that what I want to do is place that struggle in a multi-century context, not to deny the relevance or existence of that struggle at all, but to extend and expand its context. Okay. Um, uh, more things. So we are a community that comes out of, uh, out of the left. There, there aren't Christian right people here. There aren't Hindu fundamentalists here. Um, and so it will be convenient for us to focus more on how identitarianism impacts our communities because we do politics in those communities, we read in those communities, our friends are in those communities. But again, one of the things I wanna do here is actually break out of a parochial optic to see identitarianism's impact on the left as just one of its many faces, one of the many aspects of identitarianism as a new way of being in the world that um, doesn't fit into any left-right political spectrum. There is what I might call, although they would object to this, there's what we might call an ex-left group of critics. Um, our former political ally, Terry Glavin, is one. Um, and one of the things that the ex-left will do is they will make um, stories of massive society-wide cultural change, stories of left failure or socialist failure. And so uh, somebody like Terry Glavin um, would argue that identitarianism was caused by the postmodern critique, by post-colonial theory, by uh, academic movements like abundant history or standpoint epistemology. And I want us to break out of that parochialism uh, to an extent. We're gonna use that parochialism to do some focusing in. But as I said in my last piece of writing where I did try to define identitarianism, sure, postmodernists and uh, poststructuralists played a role in the rise of the identitarian moment, but it does not hold a candle to the role played by, for instance, the born again Christian movement or uh, Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam. That, um, that many of the social movements that have brought us identitarianism um, have been conservative social movements all along. 
and in particular, religious movements. Uh, I'm a historian of religion, that's my specialty. And so one of the things we will keep bumping up against um, when we look at identity, and I haven't done this in the readings because I can sort of predict what I'm gonna talk about or what I won't be able to shut up about, let's put it that way. Recognize that a lot of what we're gonna be doing here is informed by a study and understanding of conversion. That religious conversion is one of the oldest forms of the social renegotiation of one's identity. And we, um, in order to sort of break out of our parochial 21st left-wing, 21st century left-wing context, we'll return to the theme of conversion from time to time. Um, a couple of general premises that uh, the course is gonna be built on. Um, as a historian, I firmly believe that human beings, well, and as a socialist, I firmly believe that human beings are smart. Um, and I believe that human beings have been smart for as long as they've been human. Uh, I think that human beings have tremendous capacity to understand themselves and others. And uh, I think that whenever we look at the past, we need to ask ourselves, well, what would we be doing? What would make sense to us? Um, which of these sides of this debate would be compelling? And, and um, assume that uh, the version of ourselves in the past would be just as sophisticated as this version of ourselves in the present. Um, so I don't believe there's been any revolution in what human beings are capable of doing. I think that one of the main things that causes uh, the intelligence of a society to fluctuate are the social incentives for playing dumb. Um, and I think we constantly underestimate how much playing dumb remains and has always been historically a form of aggression. Um, and I, I go to the shitty husband example. If you are being a shitty husband, you are constantly saying things like, I didn't know that was supposed to go there. I didn't know that had to be done by today. I didn't know you didn't like that. Uh, I didn't remember, there's, right, and um, uh, I think those of us who've been um, like shitty romantic partners at one time or another, um, the first thing you can't find in your wheelhouse for like not being a good partner is, um, is feigned ignorance or feigned stupidity. So, a big part of my bi my bias in looking at people um, is that I assume people are intelligent and I will not accept claims of stupidity at, or ignorance at face value. One of my standard moves in fighting people on the internet about climate change has increasingly become, I don't believe you because you don't believe you. I refuse to believe that you think something as stupid as what you've just said. And uh, people are like, are you calling me stupid? No, I'm calling you intelligent. That is a far more stinging accusation. You're an intelligent, responsible person. Now explain yourself. So um, that's one of the things that I'll, that, that's like a folksy thing about how I do history. Um, 
So we can assume that not only has society existed for a long time, people have thought about its problems for a long time. They've been aware of those problems. And that's why I hate the uh, intersectionality narrative. We have been saddled with interactions among race, class, and gender for at least 3,000 years. I mean, that is the great discovery of the Indian subcontinent. They discovered race, you know, centuries before anybody else found a way to make their labor system that efficient. And uh, we had to recognize that um, it's not just an intellectual awake. Uh, we, we haven't had a recent intellectual awakening, nor have we had a recent moral awakening. Right, that the first uh, that we can find um, philosophies like Jainism, Buddhism, appear within three to five hundred years of the caste system emerging in India, because people could people very quickly developed an analysis of how it was oppressive and wrong, and um, in any society that has been afflicted with race or has been afflicted with patriarchy. There isn't just recent criticism, there's centuries of criticism. The reason we like to think, especially Canadians, we are among the worst on this front, we like to think that we have had a recent moral awakening because it is a tool for white supremacy. The idea that we just noticed that we were hurting indigenous people and now we're sorry is a thing we do every five years. Oh, we just noticed, sorry. Um, and if you, and what that does by suggesting that you've had a recent moral awakening, you both are no longer culpable for anything your ancestors did. You're not like them. And because you're not like them and you're not culpable, you also don't notice that the thing you're proposing to do to solve the problem is exactly what your ancestors did. So, oh no, we abducted all these indigenous children and we put them in residential schools. That's terrible. You know, look at all these poor indigenous children living in poverty whose lives are ravaged by colonialism and racism. You know, we need to, we need to abduct them. We need to abduct them and put them with white Christian families, and we don't, and we shield ourselves from seeing that we are perpetuating a legacy rather than escaping from a legacy because of the myth of the recent moral awakening, that we have recently become a new kind of moral person. So that's another thing that uh, we'll, we'll watch for throughout the course is how myths of moral awakening intersect with um, these problems of human identity. So um, this, um, this sort of lays out um, some of the method and uh, whatever for going forward. So next week, um, we're going to go back to probably the society that spent the most time thinking about identity politics within itself for a sustained period. And for good reasons. Um, we're going to be looking at the, um, the Spanish empire between um, uh, their uh, conquest of the Canary Islands in 1421 and their loss of their mainland American colonies in 1823. 
Um, this is, uh, we're not going to be doing like a, this happened, then this happened, but we're going to be looking at that society because um, it was in many ways, uh, it's a good basis of comparison. It's recent, it's connected, it's European, and um, it's highly self-conscious about questions of identity. And it resolves those questions very differently. But also there are elements of how the um, Spanish Habsburgs and Bourbons did identity politics that um, have faded away and are now only re-emerging in the identitarian turn. Um, one of the common, uh, one of the best-selling textbooks on the, the sort of zenith of the Spanish empire is a textbook called Faces of Honor. The honor is a really important idea. We, won't, we don't use the word honor right now in, um, in the way that it meant in Spanish back then. But identitarianism is, in my view, not a system of thought, but a system of honor. Um, and honor is an interesting thing. For the people of the Spanish early modern Spanish empire, honor functioned as a kind of meta variable for identity, a connective variable for identity, that if you had all this chaos of people's different caste and class and gender, and these various forms of status interacting. Um, this produced problems that were measured in the form of honor or dishonor. And it, they produced reactions that were designed to help people recover their honor or dishonor others. Or And so if we think that uh, and so certainly, as materialists, we want to always pay attention to how race, class, gender, etc., economically condition things and have a direct economic expression. But honor is equally important here because when people are making local calculations, they're not thinking in financial terms, they're not thinking in materialist terms when people are engaged in a day-to-day -day politics of identity in a society that is multiplying and hyper-valuing these different forms of identity, these, uh, the way problems will manifest at the individual level will be through problems of honor, through breaches in etiquette, through failure to title people the right way, all the ways that we think about honor in those old movies where people slap each other in the face with gloves and shoot each other with muskets. Uh, that's, um, those are honor conflicts. So that's what I'll be, um, uh, that'll sort of be the, our general frame next week. So questions, comments, input on um, where you'd like to go. A couple things here. I want to start with a question. You said things that are true in identity politics have only been true for less than 10 years. Can you give me a couple examples? 
Well, I'm I'm saying identitarianism. So, um, well, one of the examples was um, uh, uh, one of the examples was uh, the relationship between uh, feminists and uh, trans rights activists. Uh, They've reversed completely in ten years. Uh, Another feature would be. the uh, the idea that someone's race is a choice uh, that they make uh, that would be brand new. Um, another would be that uh, a group of people could observe another individual, describe that person to one another, and all be wrong. Uh, and so that's one of the most fundamental things is that is the theory of who decides who you are. Uh, Louis C.K., just before his um, face plant, uh, had a routine about this. Where he said, uh, you know, if a bunch of people say to you, you're an asshole, you can't say, no, I'm not. They get to decide whether you're an asshole. And, okay. uh, and that, that has shifted profoundly, um, whether it's with you know, stigmatized and categorized forms of identity or whether it's just with social observations. Okay. So, so next, uh, you said Kimberly Crenshaw said intersectionality is not, and then you gave a list of things. Can you repeat that list? Oh yeah. It's not a, uh, it's not a meta theory for understanding identity, uh, race, gender, etc that it was not proposed as an alternative to other frameworks for understanding those things. So it's neither an alternative framework, nor was it ever, uh, nor was it ever proposed as such. There are some other claims she makes as well in her article. I'm blanking on them now. Okay. So do you think what, so one of the things I learned about, you know, studying philosophy is that, you know, we create a language in philosophy to discuss things which creates jargon. And yeah. jargon can then become a tool, a shortcut for the people who are understanding of jargon. But then it sounds what's happened is that that has been co-opted by other people and that they've used, they're using the term but not the tool. Is that what's happening? Uh, with what? With intersectionality or with um, so inter- uh, yeah, with intersectionality, correct? Okay. Correct. Um, I would say that um, use the term tool, and I think that's helpful. Um, um, I think that um, intersectionality was like a socket wrench for repairing a particular dishwasher that's now being used as a hammer. Okay. Gotcha. All right. And then uh, one last thing. So we, we talk inter, inter, identitarianism is really a system of honor is, is what I hear you say. Yeah. And, and so uh, a number of years ago, I read a book about the history of the United States from a libertarian perspective. And one of the things they talked about was the difference between North culture and South culture in that South culture is from the English cavaliers who 
were a dependent upon a system of honor and that that system of honor transferred to Southern culture. And that is where the biggest divide between the Protestant work ethic culture and the honor culture of the South originates. I would, I strongly agree with that. I have differences of opinion about the historical motivations. Um, but yes, absolutely. Fundamentally there, um, is a, yeah, the South is an honor driven culture. Um, and, uh, it, um, and, and the North is not, that is not the main thing it transacts. Um, where I, I differ with respect to the South is I, for me, the reason the Southern honor culture was built is that what, uh, and the same reason you saw out of control honor culture in Spain's American colonies, um, had to do with plantation based production. Um, you can't run a plantation system. Um, if the state monopolizes violence because you need more violence than the state can provide. You need massive volunteer uh, participation in violence because it is not just the right of every honorable white man in a plantation society to kill or hurt an inferior who gets out of line. It is their duty to kill or hurt that inferior. It is their duty to kill someone else's slave if that slave is causing trouble because um, there's, these systems of plantation agriculture are so coercive that if uh, you don't have maximum participation in this kind of honor politics, um, you'll just be physically overwhelmed by your slaves. Ah, uh, uh, because you would have to do things like calling the cops. Uh, if, um, if there were an escaped slave and, uh, you know, these are low tax systems, there aren't enough cops, blah, blah, blah. And that's of course what we see in the American gun control debate up to the present day. That, um, that what's really, um, being debated is the South's belief that, um, that, uh, every honorable white man has to have a gun, otherwise he's not honorable. And he has to participate in disciplining his racialized inferiors, otherwise he's not honorable. Quickly add on to that, even if there were enough of a police force, it would remain, it would be a source of shame that somebody's slave, you wouldn't want to tell somebody that your slave had left because that would be an, indica an indication that you were not able to exert the type of control that one would expect in that type of situation. So even if there were enough of a police force, it would rem you. That's not the, that's not the avenue that you go to to maintain honor. Right, which is why the culture survived even after the slaves were emancipated and after it started hiring cops willy nilly, the uh, the the culture remained. Um, and it's it's a hard thing to get rid of. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so I, I think that, um, but I think that that point is, uh, is well taken, that the South is a coincidence of different kinds of people going to settle there. And um, 
and the material exigencies of settling there. And uh, these, uh, these things converge, and now you're in a country that is just permanently locked into that conflict. Just, just one about even the term intersectional. I, I even, I, mean, I have a lot of questions about when those who purport to use the term to describe what they claim to be describing, I'm not actually sure if that word and the term is particularly helpful in that it suggests that you have these two things that sort of just meet at this one point. Oh, but that is the thing. They don't think they're on top of each other all the time. That's an absolute function of the ideology is it's like, oh, it's an event when you're affected by your race and your gender at the same time, as though all gender isn't raced and all race isn't gendered all day, every day. That, that's right. So when we think about what an, what an intersection looks like, and if we just think about two roads that intersect, there is a lot of that road that doesn't intersect with the rest of the other one. And, I, and I, I, I'm not sure if that is a particularly helpful or accurate way to be thinking about things that compound. And so I just wanted to share, even the term intersectional, I think is, uh, I, I, there's not sure how helpful that term is to, to do the type of things that people try to use it to do. Yes, it's, it, it, it sits atop a metaphor more problematic than the term. And unfortunately, because almost no intersectionalists have read Kimberly Crenshaw, um, they often attempt to adduce the definition of intersectionality simply from its cognate word, rather than from actually reading her work, which is far closer to a second wave feminist mainstream of the time um, than one would think. But it's certainly, I mean, creating a term like intersectionality, it is a, it's a great example of how to become a black woman who is very popular with white liberals um, because the experience of intersection, like, oh my goodness, race is happening, is a white experience that other people don't get to have. And uh, so that's um, the idea that there there are moments when the thing isn't happening is... um, yeah, it seems intuitive to the lived experience of white people. Uh, even though, of course, it's equally untru- as untrue of white people as it is of everybody else. They're, you know, your whiteness affects you all the time, too. So one of the features of honor-based systems, when you're working with etiquette, is people have large, porous selves. So... For instance, in an honor in an honor society, if a patriarch's daughter um, does something that's um, viewed as uh, sexually inappropriate or religiously inappropriate, um, the patriarch has to punish her because, in a way, she's part of him. What she does is part of his selfhood. He has a big self that contains his wife and children. And so when they do things that um, undermine the self he's trying to show the world, um, they have to be very quickly brought back into line because they have drained honor out of his social body. Um, So that's... um, So one of the features of 
of um, sort of this identitarian honor politics is that who people think you are, what people say about you when you're not there, what people feel about you sexually or socially are all parts of you. They're not parts of them, right? So I am, a if, if there is a person who identifies as female, but my experience of them is as a violent bearded man assaulting my friend, if I, when they're not there, call that person he and not she, I've dishonored them, I've damaged them, because part of their rights are the right of, the right to control how I describe them and who I think they are. Um, now, I don't happen to do that. That's not a thing I, I find, I don't like the pronoun politics, but it's not a thing where I'm, I'm not Jordan Peterson, I still use people's self-selected pronouns, but the pronoun politics themselves alert us to something very important. There are a number of manifestos you might have read um, written by trans women who identify as lesbians, who believe that cisgender lesbian women not being attracted to them is an attack on them, that they have a right to conscript those women into having sex with them, and that their rights are being abridged or uh, breached by those women not feeling an attraction to them. So again, so those sexual feelings, it's not that they want to coerce or hurt those people, that's a mistake. That might be the result of those thoughts, but that's not how it's being processed. It's that they think that um, that woman's attraction to them, because it's about them, is a part of them. So part of their identity is that they are a lesbian who's attractive to women. Um, and you're attacking their identity by not, being a, by not reciprocating their attraction to you. Um, so one of the feet, and this is, this is why I got, this is why I picked honor as my heuristic, as my sort of big structural thing, because I realized that these aren't like ideological disagreements. These aren't agreements about like, why should people have sex with one another? What should people call each other? These aren't really, the, these aren't stable sets of protocols or, or beliefs exactly. What they are, are feelings of genuine injury and offense when things outside your body go the wrong way, but you feel like they're part of you. And uh, so I, I hope that that, that gets to um, uh, where you, you want it to go. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I, I see where you're headed. I, I understand and, and agree with your position on this. Um, like, like I said, you know, it, it's one of these things where I, I think you're recognizing we need to tread in a way that recognizes this can hurt people's feelings, but we need to talk about these nuances in a way that allows us to separate 
people who are using this is who I am is important as compared to people who are using this is who I am so I can exclude and oppress others. And I think that, that I, I feel that that's where your discussion is, is going. Yeah, some of it is the hedonic calculus. But, you know, what's interesting to, um, like, in my, um, you know, in my conversations with, uh, with Nina Arsenault when she was, you know, this really brilliant trans community leader in, um, in Toronto, um, now, she had, a, she had a very interestingly structured career in that it was partly sessional lecturing contracts at York University and partly sex work. Um, which, you know, uh, is, uh, is not, not everybody's path. And so in many ways, um, you know, all of these sorts of cliches of appearance, um, you'd, you'd apply to her. She'd had a lot of work done and she had a manner that she had cultivated in order to do sex work well. So she's a very charming lecturer. Nina Arsenault did not in any way think that she had a right to her body being attractive to certain people. Uh, that would have been a bizarre thought, a rapey thought. Um, instead, this is the kind of question she, uh, she put forward on this front. It's like, you know, she says, so many uh, men don't understand why I don't have the bottom surgery because I'm passable. And she said, you know, and I really zeroed in on that word because I thought, well, I've had all this work done, but like how many regular cisgender women are passable in this universe? Um, right. And so it was a very different empathetic move. It was a, I've been complimented. What does this compliment mean in terms of like a larger structure of how women are oppressed? Um, and so some of what I'm talking about is when you live in an honor-based society and you have a big porous self and there are pieces of it inside other people and strewn around your house and stuck in your clothes and things like that, um, you're always in a position of injury and dishonor. Like everybody's dishonoring everybody else all the time in an honor-based society. Um, and honors the form of social capital you're using to spend and pay for everything. Um, it is corrosive to having an empathetic imagination. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think the, 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 the trans women who led the community a decade ago, people like Jamie Lee Hamilton, is they used this, they had a greater capacity for imaginative empathy because of their unique subject position and made profound interventions about people's shared plight. And so I do think that there is, there's a way in which a politics of honor and a politics of solidarity are always on a collision course. And so if you make your identity in an honor system, your personal capacity for solidarity um, is corroded all the time. So important this honor politics, the identitarian honor, honor politics, because what is happening in India right now, we saw this whole revival of uh, identitarian honor politics in order to have that majoritarian right-wing narrative on the ground. 
right? So I identify with what you are saying right now because this is actually happening on the ground. So how can I read more about it? Like I'm really interested in this uh, honor politics. So uh, because now you have uh, put me into that direction, I want to know more of the authors and the writers I can read in order to understand more about it. And second is I am interested in something you said about uh, when you were talking conflict between the second wave feminism and the transgender community in 1990s. Uh, something you mentioned about that, maybe I'm mistaken, I, uh, if not that, but uh, I want to read more about how the politics was shaping up uh, in the 1990s when the second wave feminism and the transgenders were coming together to define a uh, few terms or uh, coalitions or solidarities. So where can I start from? Well, there, um, what, what took place was undisciplined and grassroots. Um, I think in the 1990s was the point of the greatest, um, the 1990s and the noughts, I would say, were a period where um, academic feminism and grassroots feminism were at their most divergent in North America. Mm -hmm. So the thing is that grassroots feminism um, remain dominated by the second wave, second wave thinkers. And so, um, and that's because second wavers are interested in like material solutions to women's poverty and men's violence. So the, the various women's shelters, women's organizations, etc., remained governed by second wave feminists. And in academia, this thing called third wave feminism came along, um, which really had no social movement, no significant social movement impact. Um, and what that meant was, so for people who um, were dealing with the experience of uh, problematizing or changing their gender, a lot of them went to feminist, uh, second wave feminist organizations um, for material help. And these alliances were very material in character, right? Especially um, trans women sex workers, right? They, there were very few people who were interested in protecting them from men's violence. Before I lose track of today's questions, I thought I'd record my answers uh, now that I sort of have the computer up and running again. So Samina was asking about um, two things, um, larger theorizations of honor and honor politics, and about the relationship, uh, the complex relationship between trans rights activists and uh, feminists since the 1990s. Uh, on the first subject, um, I will look at getting um, some uh, recommendations to you. Uh, I don't uh, have uh, a lot of um, honor politics history stuff ready to hand. I will see if I can um, also put you in touch uh, with people who specialize in um, 
honor uh, politics uh, in the Spanish Empire. I know a few of those people, uh, if you're interested. Uh, I was starting to tell the story of um, the some of the problems of both um, cohesion and some of the successful alliances in spite of that uh, that we see emerging in the 90s. The 90s is a time of um, rapid bifurcation between what we might term academic or um, middle-class feminism and uh, what we might term uh, activist uh, feminism. Uh, and that's because in the mid-1980s, something calling itself third-wave feminism appeared in universities. Um, third-wave feminism was in many ways a lot like uh, the intersectionality movement. And we might situate Kimberly Crenshaw's original 1989 article. Uh, at the time, it would have been called a third-wave feminist article because it was largely elite level uh, feminists in universities indicting other feminists for excluding um, underclass, sex workers, people of color, etc. from their uh, analysis. Um, and that conversation went on in universities. There were questions about the relationship between postmodernism and feminism. Uh, there was a bunch of gendering of Enlightenment epistemology as masculine or anti-feminist. Um, I myself do not believe third wave feminism has happened yet. Uh, I think that we await the third wave. I think many things we call third wave feminism are in fact the backlash against second wave feminism. At the elite level and in universities, uh, battles raged between second and third wave feminists. And third wave feminists um, presented themselves as being highly inclusive uh, in their analysis and in their actions. The thing was that at the grassroots level, um, third wave feminism was not really a force. When it came to organizing your Take Back the Night March or your women's shelter or your transition house, um, there weren't a lot of third wave feminists um, except for people who applied to well-paying executive director positions. But that creation of a professional nonprofit class was just beginning in the late 80s. It hadn't concluded in the present. So for the most part, um, services, uh, feminist services for women by women were not particularly hierarchical and were not highly monetized in the 90s. And so this meant that second wave feminists very much dominated, second wave feminism dominated the people who were in the trenches doing the work. And it's in this context that alliances with transgender rights activists become more important. Um, an early issue for trans rights activists um, was for the um, very, very high levels of sexual violence that uh, trans women are subject to from men, even higher levels of violence than other women are subject to. And there simply weren't a lot of people 
whose main feminist concern was men's violence, other than the second wave people who still had their boots on the ground. And um, so uh, they were the natural allies of um, many of the early transgender rights activists. And that's the kind of system, that's the kind of community that people like Jamie Lee Hamilton came up through in Vancouver. Um, as a racialized person and as a transgender person, um, her experience was that second wave feminists were the only people who went to bat for her. There were powerful alliances, but I want to be clear that they were not rooted in analysis. They were rooted in the provision of service and the provision of protection and a shared understanding of the power and relevance of men's violence and men's threats of violence in maintaining a patriarchal system. For that reason, um, it's not as though there was a trans rights theory that was shaped by second wave feminists. Um, theory that was being put out in the 90s and the early 21st century um, had a very different optic. And it was much slower to come to include uh, transgender people within its, uh, its optic. But um, during that time, when there was this period of a natural material alliance, um, neither at the academic level, which was very separate from that alliance, nor at the grassroots level did a compelling um, theorization of the place and rights and uh, needs of transgender people emerge. Uh, and that's because of, I think, a, a larger movement level chaos that arose out of uh, the end of the second wave and the porn split that we're going to spend a whole class on because the split in the feminist movement in the early 1980s um, was, I would argue, engineered from outside. It's not something to blame the feminist movement for, but that split is the origin of so many of the problems that we face today, including um, the rise of identitarianism on the left.